turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. We come to our second message in the series of Living Stones. Peter kind of paraphrasing an Old Testament passage that illustrates the preeminence of Christ and then by extension the value that the followers of Christ have. He quotes from Isaiah 28:16 that says, Therefore thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am the one who has laid a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste. We remember from our study of the book of Hosea how Israel had trusted in idols. Hosea and Isaiah were contemporaries. Israel was trusting in other gods to save them from the coming invasion of Assyria. You might remember that from our study in Hosea. And Isaiah is comparing trust in a false god, one made of stone, with trusting in a living god, a sure stone or foundation. Now, trusting in false gods is obviously useless. Clearly, the Lord is the basis for physical deliverance and for spiritual salvation. Now, when he talks about this deliverance, we're not sure if he meant a future Messiah or did he mean in the immediate deliverance uh, in 750 BC, whatever it was, we know this, that the Lord is the one responsible for our deliverance. The Lord is the one responsible. They could not deliver themselves from their invaders just through their military might. They could not depend on false idols to save them Here's another reference that makes the same claim. From him shall come the cornerstone. From him, the tent peg. From him, the battle bow. From him, every ruler. All of them together. Zechariah 10. Let there be no doubt that the Lord is the source of our deliverance. This indeed would be an encouraging word to the recipients of 1 Peter because they were being persecuted for their faith. And so Peter is saying, God is in control, that God is your source of delivery. Let's read what Peter writes here. Let's all stand as we take a look at it. I'll read the passage in context, but we'll just look at verses six through eight today. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Father, the meaning of this passage 
we rely upon your Holy Spirit to give us. We cannot rely even upon our own intelligence to think that we can understand all of this. We need you. And we certainly cannot rely upon our own power, but we need your Holy Spirit to empower us to put it into action. And so we depend on you even now in this interaction between the Word and ourselves that we might absorb it and do it. Do a work as only you can, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. The cornerstone is the foundation stone from which the building rests upon. It reminds me of when this facility was built and the many who helped us build the foundation walls. I remember one construction worker coming up to me and saying, this was as good a quality of a church as he had ever seen being built, thanks to Carrie Paskey. But I would like to think it refers also to other things than the building itself. Now, with the building itself, it started with a sure foundation. We know the building does not outlast the foundation. There was dirt that was moved and leveled. Blocks were laid. Concrete was poured. And we assume that that foundation is sure. But the church is not a building. You might see on our sign, Christ Community Church. But it isn't so unless you are inside this building. Paul says the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. The church is comprised of the believers of Jesus Christ, and the foundation is more sure than any earthly facility. This household of God, this church, has a foundation or cornerstone in Jesus Christ. If the foundation of the church is off, it's going to steer the church in unsavory directions. The psalmist said, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Jesus is our standard. These aren't just Sunday school words. And every part of the building, that means us, gets his or her life from him. He is the support. He is the unifier, the connector, the strength giver. And the apostles and prophets are the ones used to lay the foundation. They were the ones from which the New Testament was disseminated. They were the construction workers for the foundation, but the actual means, the substance, the material was Jesus Christ. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ, according to 1 Corinthians 3. We can operate with the confidence in the church when we know the foundation is Christ and him alone. We know that the material that God uses in constructing the church is not junk. We might see the building in disrepair. The floor may not be swept. There may be holes in the wall. But the foundation 
is sure. What does this practically mean? So far, it's good theory. But when you apply this, when Christ is the foundation, every minute of our lives are to be lived in dependent upon him. That means in whatever severe disappointment you are in, how can Christ be my life in that second? When you walk into a room, do you worry about how other people will receive you or do you look to Christ at that moment for approval? When you doubt your identity, whether it's value or gender or purpose, do you look to your creator to fill your need, to fill your soul? When life has maybe lost its meaning and you feel like giving up, faith says God exists and he will reward those who seek him. I suggest in Christ, this is where we can find our deepest needs met and daily temptations that steer us to ourselves in the world for answers. We look at how chosen and precious were spoken of Christ and now spoken of us and paraphrase from Isaiah. He is to be held in honor. We therefore are gonna be held in honor. Anybody who trusts in Christ will also have a firm foundation of Christ in him and us in Christ, though others will ridicule you, condemn you, and even kill you, God will honor those who are faithful. The psalmist said, those who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. Now, our country presently is not being invaded, so we don't have fear of an immediate invasion, but maybe for us the foundation means calmness in strife, forgiveness when ridiculed or criticized, resting in Christ when circumstances are against us. Now listen, objectively, and I say this objectively, nothing can touch us outside of the sovereignty of God, outside of the care that Christ provides for us. Subjectively, we don't always realize that because we still live on this earth. We still have our flesh. We still have our fears and concerns. But objectively, we are safe in Christ. And nothing can touch us being in Christ. Right? Thank you for the three that agree. The rest, you need to read your Bibles. An anonymous woman phoned the Krakow Animal Welfare Society with concerns about an unidentified menacing object or animal that was in a tree outside her window near her home. When asked if it was a bird, she suggested it might be an iguana or some other type of living creature. The tree beast had been in place for two days, and the neighbors 
were afraid to open up their windows or to even come out to take a look for fear of what it might do. And when animal welfare personnel arrived on the scene, they were prepared that maybe it was a domesticated animal or a wild beast that had wandered elsewhere. What they found was a croissant. <laughs> Apparently, the flaky French pastry had been lodged into a tree branch so high that the neighbors were unable to identify it from a distance. The theory floated that perhaps somebody had tossed it into the tree trying to feed a bird, and it became lodged and remained uneaten. Is it possible that our fears are like that sometimes? If Christ is in us, and we are in Christ, and we are safe. Now, we can get into all kinds of theological conversation about it, but I'm 100% convinced that the truth is on the side that we are in Christ, Christ is in us, and nothing can touch us, all right? But having said that, if that's the objective fact, all circumstances are as menacing as a French pastry. I'm not saying our bodies cannot be harmed. I'm not saying we may not lose our life. I'm not saying that we may not feel, you know, worry or whatever. But in comparison to eternal life in Christ that is in him and him in us, then I can understand why Paul would say death has lost its sting. That even the worst thing that can happen is not a fear. And if that's the case, then why are we worrying about money and a host of other things? We have to choose Christ over being a prisoner to our worries or fears. And if you want, you can also have a 22 on hand to put a hole in that baguette that's caught in the tree. Right? Earthly suffering is magnified in our flesh. Peter is seeing it as a privileged opportunity for Christ to be honored. What a thought. Hey, you that are being persecuted, God loves you and values you, and now you have an opportunity in the midst of this persecution to give him honor by the way that you live your life. Hey, you two apostles that are in prison, start singing. You get the picture? Peter knew about that. Now, there's no way that can happen unless we're dependent on Christ in the moment. So, the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. The Greek word for honor is the same one used in 1 Peter 3, 7 for husbands who are called to honor their wives. It has the idea to uh, value something highly in reverence and, and, and respect. It's used of God many times. For instance, in Revelation, amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might 
might be to God forever and ever. And of Jesus, in saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Think of it, you have been suffering. You are being chased by government and religious authorities for your life to be taken or thrown in prison. However, God is promising to honor you to reward your faithfulness. Every act of obedience will be recognized. God will reward those who obey him, and his justice will make sure that those who disobey him and reject Christ will receive what they want, a life without him, and all that it entails. In Matthew 21 and Acts 4, the builders were the Jewish leaders who rejected Christ, but now Peter's kind of expanding the picture to anyone who rejects Christ. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. When it falls on anyone, it will crush him. When the chief priests and Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. When Peter gave his sermon to the Jerusalem Council in Acts 4, he said, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. Peter says they stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Disobeying the word can have two meanings. It can be rejecting the moral law of God, which every one of us has been guilty of. The fact is, every one of us here have broken the Ten Commandments. All of them. He said, oh, wait, wait, wait. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I remember listening to Franklin Graham at, uh, live in Kansas City. And he gave, I thought, it was a brilliant presentation of the gospel through the Ten Commandments. And he showed how all of us have broken the Ten Commandments. You say, well, wait a minute, I have never cheated on my wife. Well, you have in your head. You have in your heart. Every one of those Ten Commandments. And then he showed how the grace of God covers us in the gospel. So, there's the truth of that. There is a moral order that we have not obliged, but God covers us in Christ. But this also can mean by disobeying the word and by the context, disobeying the gospel of God. And there's consequences as a result of that. Wiest, who wrote his word studies in the New Testament, said this, those who are disobedient are appointed to stumble at the word, which is the penalty for refusal to believe it. Because men are disobedient, God has destined that such men experience the consequences. Now listen, we don't like to talk about this. This seems contrary to good church business in today's culture. We want members. We don't want to talk about judgment of God. 
But listen, the church has a greater responsibility than appealing to the culture. Yes, there is forgiveness. Yes, there is the grace of God. It's applied to those who humble themselves before God and admit their sin. But however uncomfortable we are to speak of the judgment of God, however much this culture repudiates the concept, there is clarity from the Scripture regarding God holding every human accountable. And that's believer and unbeliever. The believer is judged for the sake of rewards, not salvation. That is already covered in Christ. If it's not, then why did he die? Every sin is covered. If it's not, it's a sham. It's not based on our performance. It's based on Christ and him alone. But the unbeliever is judged for punishment in rejecting God and the gospel of Christ. Each person is responsible for their choices about God, the gospel, and obedience to God's law. Here's the biblical evidence. If you want to argue, argue with him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he's done in the body, whether good or evil. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. For the wages of sin is death. That's the penalty. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. And then Paul, in describing a long list of how rebellion is expressed, says this, but they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all. Let there be no question. There is judgment for the believer in terms of rewards. And there is judgment for the unbeliever in terms of their rejection of the gospel. Each of those truths are sobering for both groups. Now listen, when we try to apply this today into our culture, we realize American culture doesn't mind talking about God, but when you start getting specific about Christ, the gospel, and sin, eh, that's another thing. Hang on to this. Neutrality is a fiction when it comes to Jesus. Not making a choice is a decision to reject the gospel. And what Peter is doing is reaching back into the Old Testament and letting us know that God has anticipated this rejection. And those persecuted in Peter's day and Christians today cannot be surprised by this rejection. God is still sovereign and he's wise in his plan that is in place. Rejection of God and the culture. Well, you know, we often term it as evangelicals as merely moral and material hedonism. 
But I wonder if we like to categorize it that way because we don't like to look at the underbelly of evangelicalism, especially in America, where it's politicized by a kind of triumphalism on earth, where faith is myopically seen as, you know, earthly victory, healing, hyper-programming, and material success. And pushed to the edge and rarely talked about is humility, suffering, sacrifice, and that God is in the middle of that. Don't give me your triumphal view of evangelicalism until you can explain it to the lady who's dying of cancer, who loves God. Tell her why her faith is not healing her. And then I'll tell you why your view of Christianity falls woefully short. Because it's got to work there for that lady just as it works for the person who maybe enjoys a season of blessing as well. But that is not the definition of the successful Christian life. To be healed, to have the money, to have the show up on the stage. Because that's just what it is, a show. But reality for the church is reaching in to the midst of the suffering. I know there are some people that maybe look at us as being some slow poke church, simple because we don't have all the programming. Do you think we're that stupid? That we do that just because we don't know better? We do it by design. Because the more stuff you add, the more you realize that people are seeing the stuff and not Jesus. I can't speak for everybody else. This applies to any church, no matter the size. You know, I I don't mean to be crude, but I say this to my wife. You don't need a low-cut blouse and a miniskirt for me to be attracted to you. I love you just the way you are. You don't need an, an inch of makeup for me to be attracted to you. I love you as you are. And sometimes the churches are putting on a miniskirt, a low-cut blouse, and an inch of makeup. But I want to see Jesus. And I want Jesus to be there in the midst of the suffering and not the other stuff. I can speak for ourselves in the way we want to do it. I can't speak for everybody else. But there's a reason why we do it this way. Because we want to see Jesus and him alone. And I'm sure that there are ways he's not seen. I'm sure there's probably ways that we can improve on it. So fix your own house short so you talk about others, right? Humility, suffering, and sacrifice, that's to be welcomed. It's so easy for our flesh to want a bunch of other expressions to meet needs of our own ingenuity and not to see Christ. I'll take the simplicity of the relationship. That's why when I talk to my other pastor friends and I look at the relationships that we've established here, do you realize the gold that we enjoy here in the relationships and the perspectives? I wouldn't trade it for anything and feel so blessed by you and your approach, and I love you for it. Author Kate Bowler, associate professor of Duke Divinity School, wrote some insights on what she called the gospel of hustle. 
or the can-do mentality that has pervaded American culture. Again, I think that's at the, at the center of evangelicalism's problem with this is the flesh. We add to it. Our performance can make us lose salvation. Our performance can make sure we get healed. Our performance can, you know, cover. It's like, it's not our performance. It's Christ and him alone. And she was lamenting this can-do mentality. Uh, she talked about popular axioms like, Everything is possible if you'll only believe, and everything you need is already in, inside of you. She said, American culture has popular theories about how to build a perfect life. You can have it all if you just learn how to conquer your limits. There's infinity lurking somewhere at the bottom of your inbox or the sack of self-help books on the bedside table. And then at age 35, Baller was diagnosed with incurable stage 4 colon cancer which caused her to think, rethink ideas about hustle culture, doing more, pushing more to achieve success. She wonders what enough looks like, feels like. She writes how she's been able to manage her cancer and she has a new perspective. She's learned she cannot hustle through cancer or pain by just better routines. Now, there's certainly some merit to human efforts, but our formulas can't solve those core issues that we struggle with as humans. We cannot derive meaning ourselves. We can't find identity outside our creator. We can't solve the problem of pain, at least in a, in a macro sense. You can't out-hustle sin or the flesh. And I think this is exactly why Solomon mourned the futility of life. This was a guy who had all the women, all the real estate, all the possessions one could ever want. I mean, he was a multi-zillionaire, Right? And he said, it's all empty. It all amounts to a zero. It's not found in working harder, having more. And then Jesus comes along and he just blows it all up. And he says, come unto me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. If there's anything that does not describe modern evangelicalism, it's rest. Because it usually means do more, work harder, have more. We're speaking to ourselves here. I'm not speaking about the other guy. These are the temptations we all face.